Hi, I'm Dr. Avanti Kumar Singh. In over 20 years of practicing both Western medicine and Eastern healing traditions, the most important thing that I've learned is that healing is a journey we take together. So on this podcast, I'll be demystifying Ayurveda and other integrated medicine, showing how these simple ancient practices are the keys to unlocking a healthy modern life. We are all healing catalysts because healing starts within. It starts with you and it starts right now. This is a Soulfire production. Episode number 101. Hey everyone, it's me, Avanti. Welcome back to the Healing Catalyst podcast. I've been in New York City for the past two weeks where I attended a family wedding and have been working remotely. It was so wonderful to be with my family, my husband, my kids, my parents, my sister and her family, and so many aunts and uncles and cousins, family members that I haven't seen in 15 and even 20 years, many not even since I got married 25 years ago. And it was filled with so much laughter and joy and practical jokes and a lot of fun and also a lot of deep conversations and connections and a lot of tears too. Some of my cousins and I met each other's kids for the very first time, kids that are now in their 20s. And it was so amazing to see how they all bonded so deeply in such a short amount of time. I was really struck by how meaningful it is to know that you're connected by a shared family history, how it can create a sense of comfort almost immediately. And I also know that isn't always the case and that many times it's quite the opposite, that it can actually be very triggering to be with family. But what I realized is that my attitude definitely shaped the reality I experienced. My internal dialogue, my thoughts, those both shaped how I showed up in my actions, my words, my energy, and that in turn influenced how others reacted to me. But to be honest, going into the wedding, I wasn't really feeling very well. I wasn't feeling great as I had just finished radiation and was feeling really self-conscious about my external appearance. Choosing clothes to wear was really difficult and upsetting with my new body shape. Feeling low energy and pain in my body was making me feel like I wouldn't be able to really enjoy myself. And so what was the point? I definitely felt myself spinning down that anxiety drain hole in the first few days before leaving for the wedding. But then I shifted. I shifted into deep gratitude because I remembered that it could very easily have been that I couldn't attend the wedding at all if I hadn't had the positive treatment response that I'd had. A treatment response that I know was truly the result of an integrative medicine approach to cancer using integrated healing modalities. And so this month, during the month of October, which also happens to be Breast Cancer Awareness Month, which of course there's no coincidences, right? Our intention is cancer and our health because I've received so many messages from all of you asking me to share what I did during my journey with breast cancer. And so this month, we'll be exploring integrative oncology and integrative approaches to cancer treatment. And so today, to kick off the discussion, I'm joined by my own integrative oncologist, Dr. Shelley Smekins. Dr. Smekins is a naturopathic doctor who specializes in supporting people through all stages of cancer, prevention, active treatment, and survivorship. 
She's co-authored studies on a variety of topics, including treatment delays in early stage breast cancer, using circulating tumor cells to detect disease recurrence, and the immune effects of maitake mushroom extracts. She's also written numerous articles on integrative oncology, women's health, and caregiver wellness. And currently, she's collaborating on a critical research review of both integrative and conventional treatments for hot flashes. In our conversation, Dr. Shelley and I discuss how integrative oncology combines conventional and integrative treatment modalities by addressing the whole person in cancer treatment. We also dive into specific tools and interventions in integrative oncology management and how to navigate common challenges that arise during cancer treatment. We also discuss my own personal healing journey through breast cancer and how Dr. Shelley guided me through all of it. If you or someone you know, a family member, a work colleague, a friend, is being faced with a cancer diagnosis, going through treatment or in survivorship, which is most likely pretty much anyone and everyone listening, you don't want to miss this conversation. I'm so honored to share with you my conversation with my integrative oncologist, Dr. Shelley Smuckins, discussing integrative oncology as we explore cancer and our health. Dr. Shelley, I am so happy to have you on the podcast. You have helped me through my journey so much. And you know, I finished my last radiation treatment just two days ago. And we are recording this podcast shortly after I am done with all my treatment. And you have been an integral part to my healing journey, my story. So thank you for that. It's been an honor to be on your team. I appreciate it. You've really helped me sort through a lot of things when I was really, really confused and having a lot of the tug inside of me of, you know, the integrative world that I live in, the world of Ayurveda and yoga therapy, and then having a medical degree and that Western medicine perspective, and then helping me just sort through how to bring them together. So I have found that invaluable. And so I'm really hoping that this conversation is going to really help the listeners because, you know, all of us either have been, you know, gone through a cancer diagnosis ourselves or have a loved one or a friend or an office colleague that's going through it. So I think this is something that everybody will really, really find helpful. So I'm really hoping that our discussion today about integrative oncology is really going to help a lot of people to, to know that there's another way to look at a diagnosis like cancer. So thank you so much for being with me today. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. So let's start with, you know, a little bit about your story, because I find that so many of us who are in the healing professions, we have a story that brought us there and it has informed how we show up as healing professionals and the work that we do. So you know, how did you get into integrative oncology? And it probably starts before that, but let's talk about that. Sure. So when I was in high school, I worked in my aunt's medical practice and it was really ahead of its time and that it had a lot of different disciplines and different personalities. and was very collaborative. So you had medical doctors and chiropractors. There was an acupuncturist, botanical medicine expert. So really thinking this was like early 1990s, pretty advanced for the time. And I got great exposure to seeing patients go through the process of having chronic illness, feeling like they didn't have answers or opportunities to take hold and have a role in their own healing. So that was really 
a benefit for me early on to see that succeed, to see successes in people who had not been able to heal through conventional means. So that was a great experience. Then in college, I was not planning to go into medicine. So I was not planning to become a physician, very interested in natural environment in general. So started environmental studies, did a lot of traveling. So I guess you could say that was like the Vata period of my life, a lot of kind of exploring the different areas that I would want to go. And then I studied abroad in Perth, Australia, and I was there for about eight months. And I met a naturopathic physician while I was there. And it was my first exposure to that particular training. And she was instrumental in letting me know what the scope of this training could be. Because I always thought that perhaps this was like some sort of like self-study layperson approach to medicine. And understanding that this was a four-year medical degree that would convey a higher level of training that I would learn about pharmaceuticals just as well as botanical medicine, that was illuminating to me because I grew up in the Midwest and it just wasn't that prevalent. So then when I came back to the United States, definitely take a little look at it, had some interest in it. But then doing visits to the schools, you just kind of get like that little tingle in your uh, skin and you feel that your heart intersects with the path that you're supposed to be on and never really like, you know, thought again that there'd be something else that I could do in life, just knew that this was the right steps and that kind of the universe was nudging me there strongly. So then obviously did that four-year program, did not think I would do oncology, was very interested in women's medicine, environmental medicine, which of course really intersect with oncology now that I know this. But when I was there, I did a rotation, I believe it was the beginning of my third year. And was so impactful, just the relationships that I had with patients, their stories, getting to know their families. There was no other training or exposure that I had where it was such a larger community involved in someone's treatment. And a lot of that is the urgency of an oncology diagnosis. But I also think that just calling into your larger community becomes really impactful. And also people were very motivated. Patients were very motivated to do things to improve their outcomes and to help them tolerate conventional treatments better. So I did that rotation and then went back and then went back. And a lot of these things were outside of like my formal training at that point, just really interested. And I did also do rotation at Integrative Cancer Hospital. So I did that and then ended up applying for a residency. And that was my initial exposure was just doing in Phoenix, Arizona, doing an offsite that the patients there were so memorable to this day. Some of them still email me or I'll get a holiday card. So it's, it's really the, the relationship aspect. But of course, the, the biology of oncology is so interesting too. Yeah. Amazing. So you had no idea that you're going to be a physician and then you went to became a naturopathic physician and then an integrative oncologist. And so, yeah, I think that happens to many of us. We're like, or many of us are on the opposite boat. We think we're going to just do this and then we end up doing something a little bit different, which is probably my story as well. Yes. So, okay, let's get into integrative oncology because I think it's really easy to throw these words around and it's kind of like, well, what does that actually mean? So can you explain, you know, from your perspective, what makes integrative oncology different than traditional allopathic Western medicine, you know, the thing that we always think Mm -hmm. about oncology. Because I had both a Western oncologist, sort of a traditional oncologist on my healing team, and I had you, Mm -hmm. the integrative oncologist. And it was really helpful to me. But let's talk about the differences because there are differences. There are differences. 
I think the kind of commonly used analogy of the seed in the soil is really helpful in this context. So conventional oncology is very focused on the seed, you know, cut out the seed, which is the cancer, poison the seed, radiate the seed, you know, do as much as we can kind of aggressively to control the disease, looking at it as the seed. And integrative medicine and integrative oncology is looking at the soil, like what conditions did this tumor develop in? What things might help control its relapse? How is that soil doing in the context of that radiation and cutting and all the things that are involved in the conventional sense of it? So I often tell patients that I'm working on their terrain. I'm working at the soil in which this cancer developed, and I'm trying to keep them as healthy as we can and to recover as quickly as we can so that their constitution is healthy because at the end of the day, you can do all those conventional modalities, but you can have relapse. You can have recurrence. You can have treatments that are too toxic that you can't finish your conventional treatment. So that's a lot of the ways that I explain it to patients. We can go into kind of more detail about tests that I would do or modalities I would use. But I do think that that kind of analogy is is helpful for people to understand just kind of on a high level what I'm doing. Yeah, no, I think that's really helpful, the seed versus the soil. But what I think is really important, maybe, you know, click into and, and point out is that just because you're an integrative oncologist doesn't mean that you're not also going to deal with the seed in the sense of leading your patient to understand that getting rid of the seed is important as well. But even more important is to really deal with the soil if you don't want it to come back, if you want to have better outcomes less side effects, right? Is that what you mean also? Yeah. yeah. So I definitely don't want to miss the fact that integrative therapies are also meant to help control the seed. So it may not be a surgical procedure. It may not be exposure to ionizing radiation, but there are things from the natural world or things that we can do that helps with tumor control. So for example, we know that there are now numerous trials using high-dose vitamin C at oxidative levels and those things showing synergy with conventional therapies like during radiation, during chemo. So those things are being used alongside. Same thing is true with the botanical viscum album, which is mistletoe. Those things for the most part have been used alongside conventional therapies. The use of medicinal mushrooms like coriolis, which is turkey tail or maitake has been used alongside conventional therapy. So they have been tested for safety, but also efficacy concurrent to using uh, conventional treatments. So not always just in survivorship. Right. And so I think the point there is that it's addressing the seed. It's, you know, slowing down the growth of it and the replication of it. It's slowing down the spread of it. If there's metastasis involved, I mean, it's doing all of those. So it is having an impact on the actual seed or the tumor, right? But it's also then you're also addressing the soil, everything else that's going on in that organism, in the human body, mind, body, spirit, because we've had a lot of conversations about that, even in my healing journey, uh, that that's really important into how the seed will then respond to the treatments that you're doing, whether they're botanical, natural, or allopathic Western medicine, right? Radiation, chemotherapy, surgery, et cetera. So I think that that's really important. and. And because, you know, sometimes this can become so positional, like you either have to go this way or that way, right? And, oh, you know, this one doesn't mix with this one. So it's a lot of times the Western perspective, the allopathic traditional medicine that will say, well, don't take any, any kind of supplements while you're doing this treatment. But then they'll tell you to drink something like Gatorade. Like I almost lost my 
shit when, when I had a nurse <laughs> practitioner say that to me. And she knew I was integrative too. And she was telling me to really hydrate and make sure that I was drinking Gatorade the night before my chemotherapy. And I was like, okay, this, I mean, what is wrong with this message, right? <laughs> yeah, it's a lot of mixed messaging. There's a bias in it, right? So there's a kind of this long history of, and, and to be fair, alternative medicine sometimes was considered in lieu of conventional treatment. So I do think it has a bad rap because of historical roots that might be somewhat true at times. And I will say, in addition to being an naturopathic physician, I'm also a dietitian. So I do think a lot about food first. So I think that Another bias is that, oh, we're jumping right away to always using supplements, which is not the case. I do think there's a hierarchy of interventions, and I think food is first. Uh, of course, uh, a lot of the psychological and emotional things as well, first. And I also think that going back, it's easier to say don't take anything because it's really hard work to understand the literature of using these different... There's so many botanicals. It's actually kind of endless, the number of combinations that you could have, the potential interactions or additive effects of those things. So I think if this is not your training, it's much easier to say no to all than to sit there and kind of dig through. The databases exist, but they're not great. So unless you're extremely current, you maybe don't know if you can use quercetin alongside somebody who has a KRAS mutation or not. So some of these things are very nuanced. And I think there are clinicians that just that's not the scope of what they do. So it's easier to say no, no, no. But it would be more honest to say, I don't know. Right. Than to say no. Right, exactly. And saying, and rather than scaring patients, because, you know, here's the truth I speak the language. I'm a physician. So, and I'm also in the integrative world. And I had already talked to you, talked to so many friends and colleagues in integrative medicine about, okay, what am I supposed to do? Like, help me think through this, right? Most people, the average person, does not have the language to say to a physician, to their oncologist or their radiologist or their surgeon, that you know what, I also want to do integrative therapies that, that will help me through this process. And here's why, or even if they don't know why, but that's important to me, right? I was able to say that from, from the first day of meeting the surgeon, the oncologist, they all knew what my perspective was. I was very open with them. And so they didn't ask a lot of questions. Now that's a whole other problem, <laughs> but I did what I had to do, right? And so I think, you know, just not saying that, just saying don't do anything or saying I don't know. I get that. That's a better answer. But I feel like the even better answer would be to say, I don't know. And if that is something that you want to do, here's who you can go to. Here are some trusted resources. Here are some board certified integrative oncologists, Dr. Michelle Smekins. She's right here in Chicago. Give her a call. See how we can collaborate go through all of this with you. Because I think that that's so important because, and we'll talk about this, you know, how my whole journey and how I feel, feel like it was really affected by the things that you told me in a very, very positive way. So we'll get to that. But I think that that's really important. So I, I would love to ask you, you know, from a naturopathic lens, because that's sort of the lens that you're coming from and then doing integrative oncology, what are some of the things, the tools that you think are sort of more special, unique, and we've kind of touched on it, but that, that are in your toolkit that have really helped you treating patients going through cancer, you know, with this lens, what are some of those things that people, or maybe the better way to ask the question is, you know, if someone came to you, what could they expect as far as the things that you're going to use, the tools that you're going to use to help them? Mm -hmm. I think a lot of people will use 
the phrase whole person. So they'll use it as a descriptor. And it sounds great, you know, from a marketing standpoint, it sounds fuzzy and wonderful. And that's what we all want to be doing, like understanding, you know, the whole person that you're meeting with as a patient. And I think that I do pay attention to that and remind myself when I walk into a room or patient comes into my room for the first time or we meet on telemedicine to understand the limitations and strengths that they might have going through something as difficult as cancer treatment and the resources as well. So I'm not going to recommend to somebody a very dramatic diet if they don't have the ability to cook, if they don't have the finances to help with the cooking. So I do try to read the room on that and see where I can have the most impact and try to personalize a plan, not only to the treatment that they're getting, but also to the ability they have to execute because you can have the most wonderful plan, but if somebody can't comply to it, then it's only so useful. So I do think the naturopathic lens does really, really well at looking at whole person. And then I briefly mentioned looking at kind of the hierarchy of interventions and I try to do the least invasive things first. So what things can we do with diet first? What things can we remove that potentially are not good for you? So it could be something as simple like people might have a very toxic person in their life. So I had one patient that got a headache every day, every afternoon. I was trying to get hydration. I gave her magnesium. We tested all these mineral levels. We looked for food sensitivities and allergies. So we did a lot of work trying to figure out why she had these daily headaches and the hormone picture looked okay. And then I kind of went back to, this was a little bit of a sensitive topic, but I kind of went back to, well, you talked to your mom like every afternoon when you were kind of doing your little walk every day. And she's like, my mom is like so negative, like complains about people the entire time that I'm walking. And even though they had this like super close relationship, I said, maybe, maybe talking to your mom is very kind of a stressful experience for you because there is a lot of this kind of complaining and negativity. And sure enough, like with the next follow-up visit, she said to me, I cut down those phone calls and my headaches are getting better. So sometimes it's like not adding because you could see in her situation where and she was under current treatment, but we added minerals. We avoided some dietary triggers we thought were there. And at the end of the day, it was like something psychosocial, right? That was an obstacle because energetically it wasn't good for her to be having that in her day. So I think that's a good example. And anything else like along those lines? Yeah. Yeah. And then supplements, obviously, which we'll talk about too. But so before we get into the specifics, I'm going to ask, drill down a little bit more and ask you a little bit more about the tools that you specifically use. And we'll kind of go through what happens when you come to an integrative oncologist. But let me just back up for a moment. And I just want to ask you, you know, how do you think mainstream medicine is sort of failing? And I know this is a really big, we could have this discussion for hours, but, you know, where do you think that mainstream you know, Western allopathic medicine, oncology care specifically, is sort of failing in addressing this whole person, right? How do you think that, what do you think the gap is there? So you mentioned the referral to experts in the field to get this information, this knowledge. And I think there's a real business of medicine where people don't want to refer outside of their system. So that's a big barrier. I see that not only in integrative medicine, but I also see it in recommending trials that are available that potentially be good for a patient, but they're not within the system. So it's extra work to like seek out that information. So that doesn't happen very often. But even within an organization, I've sometimes seen where I particularly know that there's an excellent dietitian that works there, but that patient that I'm seeing now in front of me never got that referral, even within their own system. And they really need to say a dietitian because they lost 17 pounds between two treatment cycles. So I think that there needs to be like a, willingness to bring on more people on the care team. So I think there has to be that. 
I think sometimes time is an issue. We'll see people in the clinic, medical assistants, nursing, for sure physicians as well, where the schedule looks ominous and taking extra time to answer more questions or, or you know, really review side effect management is just not something in their bandwidth because they're already overworked and exhausted. And they themselves are not physician heal thyself. So they're already coming into their day depleted. So then they don't have their best, you know, to share with patients because they themselves don't have that to give. So I think that that is there. And I do think that we could do much better at just having resources available to patients, whether that's like hard copies or whether that's through the internet or their portal. So every time a patient starts a new regimen of treatment, right away, they're tagged on, okay, this could cause mouth sores. Here's what you do for mouth sores. This could cause neuropathy. Here's what you could do for neuropathy. Right now, what it is, is, oh, we're going to start a chemo that could cause neuropathy. You know, here's a medication you can take when it gets really bad. But don't start it yet because that has side effects. So I think the med management piece is reactive. And there are things that you can do preventatively proactive. And that's just completely overlooked, really. I think we could do a better job in oncology in general, being preventative and proactive than being reactive when the patient's already suffered a lot and it's affected their nutritional status. Yeah, I think that's the key you just said is, you know, if we can be more proactive rather than reactive, because I think that that is in the Western model, sort of, you know, the way things go, we're reactive all the time, right? That's sort of how we're trained is to be reactive. And this proactivity of saying, you know, there's all these things that you can do before this starts, because we know, I mean, it's not like this is like rocket science. It's not like we don't know what the most common side effects of of chemotherapy are. So if we know those, let's prepare a patient ahead of time with something that's preventative. And then we also have, you know, a remedy that we can be using during the time to help soften the blow really is the way I look at it. And I think that you know, having you on my care team helped me so, so much because I can be the, you know, the world's greatest physician and have all this knowledge. I become a patient. I need a physician taking care of me. And that was really sort of, I know I had that discussion with you the first time I talked to you. You asked me, we were talking on the phone, actually, you were driving somewhere to a conference that you were speaking at. You said, Avanti, I know you're a physician. So tell me how you want me to talk to you want me to just give you like the patient, like little nuggets? You want me to give you all the information? I said, give me all the information, but I'm still a patient. You laughed because I was like, can you do something in between there for me? Do you think that this idea of reactivity versus proactivity is so important, especially in oncology and cancer care? So then let's talk about what you do. You know, so when you see a patient for the first time, you're assessing, you know, the whole care and you're going least invasive to most invasive. You start with the least invasive types of remedies and therapies. What are some of the things that you use as your tools? Like what happens when somebody comes to see you and becomes an integrative oncology patient of yours? Mm -hmm. So of course, it's always good to know what the patient will be experiencing treatment wise or not. So sometimes I do have people in kind of like early cancer or pre-cancer states. So a prostate patient where like PSA rises there, but it's like indolent. So they're not going to start treatment yet or smaller multibiomas where they don't need treatment yet. So there are some situations where a patient doesn't need treatment yet for a cancer or like a pre-malignant process. So I want to say there is those situations, but for the most part, I know today we're talking about active treatment, using things alongside that. So in that situation with active treatment, I have to have an understanding about what that treatment might be. 
And then I tailor the recommendations for that. So I ask them, like, what are you eating? How are you sleeping? Are, are you moving your body? What is your exercise right now? I ask them what medications they're taking, what supplements they're taking, what things are they interested in taking? Because a lot of times patients come to me and they have some idea of something they may have read about or heard about from a friend. So understanding what they're doing currently, then talking to them in the way that kind of how we initially spoke saying, okay, how, what is your palette right now for what we potentially could be endeavoring? Because I don't want to scare people away from conventional treatment if that's what's appropriate either. So kind of being kind in my words with that. And then talking about here's the side effects that we could anticipate. Here's the ways that we can mitigate some of those side effects. Let's do this in terms of priority. So the things that are the worst or the most intense, we prioritize more. And the things that are less common or less intense, you know, we'll talk about it briefly, but it's not a big part of your plan. And then also talking about that last piece, we're talking about the synergy with the seed control or the tumor, things that maybe don't address side effects, but have some research for potentially enhancing a conventional therapy. So that's a piece of the program too. There will be, in most situations, some oral supplements. Sometimes I will use IV therapeutics because it's easier to achieve the effective dose using intravenous therapy. So sometimes I do that as well. We sometimes will use therapeutic diets. So there's a lot of interest in what we call fasting mimicking or fasting intervals. There are certain specialized diets like ketogenic diet for brain malignancies. So it's not a one size fits all for diet. Give the example of choline, which is an amazing nutrient for brain and nerve health, but choline not so good if you have prostate cancer, but seems pretty benign for some other malignancies. So there is some individual variation with diet based on the tissue of origin or anything in the biology. Now with kind of some of the genomic workup, I have even more information that I can work on too. So that does help to know what are the underlying drivers of the tumor and there are things that would be more impactful. So that is also very helpful. So I will write them a program based on those conversations we have and the things that are soon to begin. And I have kind of like my, of course, my ultimate thing, but then a lot of times I'll say, if needed, so like if you need to have this intervention, you can do this. Because I do worry that in integrative medicine in general, and this includes integrative oncology, there's a tendency to more is more. So sometimes people are taking 30 pills a day, 40 pills a day. So I have to keep that in check because we're enthusiastic about what does we do and, oh, hey, we're going to use this because it has this paper and we're going to use this because it helped, you know, 20 patients last year with that particular indication. So I think I have to, like most people, hold that enthusiasm in check and make, some, make sure it's something that's practical. So I do consider that as well when I'm executing a plan. And then there's revision. So as you saw in the work that we did together, if something happens, you have to let me know as the patient so that... I can make modifications or say, okay, that's not working. Just drop that. It's not worth stressing yourself about it. Let's focus on, you know, B, C, and D because A was not feasible and that's okay. And I think there has to be like some, some kind of letting go of go. And I actually do think that's very Ayurvedic as well. Like there's a helplessness to cancer that happens and that's okay. It's okay that there's a little bit of a helplessness and that you let others come in here and, and help you on your path to healing. I think that that's a good lesson in all of it too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I, I would agree. And I think that your comment about, you know, revising as you go, I feel like that's a big thing that kind of differentiates Western versus Eastern or integrative therapies is that in Western medicine, there is less room for movement, I find. I mean, it's a little different in oncology because if you're having severe side effects, they're going to, you know, everything's going to get stopped or the dose is going to get reduced or whatever it is. But you're still going to get those eight treatments. Like, you know, for me, I was having some severe neuropathies after 
treatment six, actually treatment five and six. And we talked about that. And then, you know, they lowered the dose for treatment seven and eight to prevent the neuropathies. And thank God that has, you know, worked out. And we were doing a lot of preventative things as well ahead of time, me and you, for the neuropathies. But we still did the eight cycles. So it's like there, there wasn't going to be movement in that. <laughs> and actually, my, my oncologist, my regular oncologist, almost kind of, she giggles. She's like, Avanti, I know what you're asking me. Just ask the question. Because I was kind of like dancing around it. I'm like, well, you know, and she's like, no, we still have to do the eight based on the evidence, right? Which I get. And, and all of the therapies that you're doing are also, I just to make sure that all the audience, you know, that the entire listening community knows this is that everything that an integrative oncologist is going to prescribe to you, whether it's a, you know, a breathing pattern or an IV therapy or a supplement or a diet, it is completely based on evidence. I mean, you know, I will tell you that Dr. Shelley would spend a lot of time. I know our appointments always used to go over the time because you would be explaining a lot of the, the studies to me to say, Avanti, this is why. Because you knew I wanted to really know a lot more, so we dug in a little more. But pretty much every recommendation that Dr. Shelley would give me for the seven months that we were working together was always evidence-based. And she said, this is why I want you to take this. This is why I want you to do this. This is why I want you to do fasting mimicking for 48 hours around your chemotherapy treatment. As hard as it's going to be, I know this is the data, right? So I think that that's really important to point out as well, is that everything you recommend is evidence-based. Absolutely. And if anything, I feel like myself personally and others in my profession are more conservative. So we can have one negative study on something and 20 positive studies, and we still err on the side of caution. So I think compared to a lot of specialties, we're very conservative with that. And especially if someone's curative intent, right? So fortunately you were curative intent in that situation. You also want to be even more cautious, right? Because in that situation, a small change could potentially change an outcome versus sometimes I will have a patient where it's not curative intent, it's disease control. And they'll say to me, well, I'm interested in taking this Peruvian botanical mixture that I really, really want to do because my sister took it and it was helpful to her knowing and understanding that it's not curative intent. And if there's some change on scans that's minor, that they want to accept that as a possible outcome. And I will, as much as possible, avoid any theoretical concern with it and explain to them half-lives and how these, the mechanism of action. But I would say overall, I'm just very conservative in most situations, unless a patient is deeply connected to something that they want to try and that it's in those kind of situations where they understand the risk with a non-curative intent disease. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. You know, getting a difficult diagnosis earlier this year, specifically a breast cancer diagnosis, was one of the hardest things that I've ever faced in my life thus far. It brought up so many feelings, so many emotions, fear, sadness, anger, and for the first few weeks after getting this news, I felt like I was slowly spinning out of control with worry and anxiety. And then as I began the first phase of treatment with chemotherapy, I was filled with the fear of not knowing if the treatments would work and deep sadness as I got more fatigued and had more side effects and couldn't really do anything but stay at home in bed resting. I felt deep loneliness and didn't know how to manage all of the negative thoughts and difficult feelings I was having. I knew that I needed help. And so I restarted therapy. 
I've been in therapy throughout my adult life to help me with so many challenges, whether relationship issues or job stress, the stress of being a parent, the stress of caring for my aging parents, or navigating a difficult diagnosis like cancer. Therapy has always helped me process these challenges and gain new insight and perspective from someone who's there to listen to me. In truth, therapy has been a really important tool for me on my healing journey this past year with breast cancer. That's why I'm so glad that BetterHelp, an online therapy platform, exists. With over 30,000 licensed, accredited, and board-certified therapists, BetterHelp makes it easy to find a therapist who meets your unique needs, whether you're becoming a new parent or an empty nester, experiencing anxiety, or navigating a really difficult diagnosis. BetterHelp is quick and affordable. And also, when you sign up, they'll match you with a therapist within days. Make your brain your friend with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash Avanti today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash Avanti. So let's talk about, because I know what so many of the listeners are thinking about is like, okay, well, what kinds of things did you do with Dr. Avanti? I know that they're all thinking because you're my integrative oncologist and so maybe we can, you know, and I'm, I'm fine with us talking about some of the things that we did. Again, with the caveat, everyone who's listening, that this is not, you know, meant to be that everyone should be doing this. It has to be very personalized. But maybe you could talk about some of the common remedies, therapies, sort of approaches for someone who is going through cancer treatment. Because again, there are so many people listening who either are going through it themselves, have recently gotten a diagnosis or have a loved one who's going through it. And maybe this will just put a, you know, a drop of curiosity to maybe look into working with an integrative oncologist to, you know, to really improve your outcomes, soften the symptoms that you're having along the way, things like that. So what are some things, and you can use me as the example, you know, things that we did to help me along the way. Absolutely. So let's talk just about a common thing that happens a lot with breast cancer in general. And some people it happens very abruptly because they do have a systemic therapy that shuts down ovarian function and they're premenopausal. So symptoms are very severe and that's hot flashes. And the conventional treatments for that typically are sometimes an antidepressant medication, but for the most part, not great conventional answers for that. So what I will start with is dietary things. So we know that spicy foods, we know that caffeine can trigger them. We know that going to bed in a bedroom that's not cool can trigger hot flashes. Stress, which a lot of people don't think about, but stress because of the catecholamine release is a big trigger for hot flashes. Blood sugar variation. So people who cut out sugar and ate a low glycemic diet had much better control of hot flashes. And when those things are not satisfactory, then I use functional foods. So then I have start people adding a tablespoon of flaxseed twice a day, which is from the research. I have sometimes people using real soy foods like edamame, not soy protein isolate, which has its own issues in the research. And people using some modalities like physical modalities, using acupuncture, which has dozens of studies showing helpful for hot flashes and not having negative side effects other than the time and potentially the cost involved with acupuncture. Although in general, acupuncture is getting more and better insurance coverage. So that is nice in my career that I've seen more access to some of those modalities as well. And then when those things are not sufficient, then I do use look to using things like supplementation. So sometimes I'll use magnesium, which can help. Sometimes I'll use Swedish flower pollen extract, which is the most popular uh, kind of 
intervention in Europe and areas like that for botanical medicine. I will use black cohosh, which has numerous studies in breast cancer patients and survivors for safety and efficacy. So I will go to botanical medicine as an intervention when we don't have enough control of hot flashes using those other things first. That is sometimes a good example because the conventional treatments are not great, right? So it's kind of nice to say, what things could we do? And all of those things are low-hanging fruit. None of those things are expensive. Even, Even the botanicals for that are very inexpensive. So it's a thing that you can treat at any kind of cost price point, because it's very, all those things are very affordable for any population. Yeah. And I, I just want to go back for one minute and, and repeat what you said. And the reason we're talking about hot flashes is because in breast cancer specifically, you, you know, if you're, if you're perimenopausal or premenopausal, like I was, once you start chemotherapy, you will be put into menopause from the chemotherapy drugs. And so all of a sudden you're like, oh my God, what in the hell just happened? I was having hot flashes, like I was sweating through. I mean, I thought I was going to lose my mind. And it was only because we were doing some of these interventions that I was able to get through that and help. Because, you know, think of this, you're already having so many symptoms, side effects from chemotherapy. You add hot flashes onto that and it's like, oh my God. And I will tell you that I really, really, for me, dietary changes really, really helped to soften the hot flashes for me. I found that I had a direct effect. That was just what I found. And I'm sure the supplementation and everything else was also helping. But, you know, from an Ayurvedic perspective, just think about this. It actually makes sense for all the listeners, you know. Uh, chemotherapy is hot, right? And so it is going to put more hot into your body as a, a woman, as a, as a female biologically. And if you already have that hotness in you, you're either menopausal, premenopausal, perimenopausal, You've got a lot of heat in you already. You add chemotherapy and there you go. You've tipped the scales and you're going to have hot flashes. So it all makes sense. And so many of the things that you were recommending is actually to decrease that heat. So many of the dietary changes, right? And we can do this, you know, just in general for hot flashes is to de. and this is something that any Ayurvedic practitioner would tell you, is you want to do the opposite, right? Opposites reduce. And so you want to add cooling foods, but you also want to take away the heating foods. So when Dr. Shelley said, you know, avoid the spicy foods, avoid the caffeine and sugar, you know, that those are things that would really help you. Absolutely. They will from an Ayurvedic perspective. So it's interesting how this all, all kind of comes together all the time. (laughs) I really do think about like dosha when I'm sitting there with a patient and I'm considering, you know, a different couple of different botanicals or maybe an enzyme or something like that. I always think of their constitution, both of the treatment that were that the patient's undergoing, but also like where they're at. So where ginger has numerous studies helping with chemotherapy, nausea, some people do terribly with ginger, other people do wonderfully with ginger. And I would say that a lot of that is constitutional. So if I see someone who has excess heat already, I'm going to mint, I'm going to aloe vera juice and gel, I'm changing their diet and pulling out all the spicy and warming. I'm having them do cool drinks and smoothies. And that is really impactful. Just personalizing some of the botanical medicine, the diet based on dosha. Yeah. Yeah. And for me, that was totally true. I couldn't, and I love ginger and I'm puffa pitta by, you know, that's my constitution. My pitta was so, you know, through the roof that many of the things that I usually eat, I could not tolerate. And it was just making everything worse. And so I did a lot of things that I usually don't do, which is having a smoothie. We had a whole discussion about smoothies because I needed to have more protein because I'm vegetarian. So 
we added all those cooling things in flaxseed and did all these things. And I will say it really, really helped. So, you know, sort of the message here is that Ayurveda is in all of this as well. And I love that Dr. Shelley was actually thinking about that because she's trained in Ayurveda as well through a naturopathic lens. They learn about all of these other healing modalities. So I really appreciated that about you. What's another, we talked about hot flashes. What's another common issue that people are going to face when they're going through cancer treatment that maybe we could talk about? Again, you can use me as the example. Sure. I think fatigue is so impactful. And as you know, your treatment was very intense compared to a lot of chemotherapy regimens. So much tougher than average and the fatigue is more debilitating. And when you don't feel like eating and it's difficult, the self-care part of it is very challenging. I think getting that nourishment into patients is very important and being able to deliver to them ways that they can consume calories and hydration in a palatable form. I think that's very important. And so that's why we do go to more macerated foods, foods that are broken down, easier to assimilate, really important. And then timing, like the most important timing of getting that nourishment in. So if someone's on a two or three week chemotherapy regimen, getting that in kind of like that week two is really important because they're going to have a little bit of a bump up as they start to feel better. So the worst days for most people after chemotherapy are like days three through seven. So not forcing them to feel like they have to eat a lot in those days, but more during the recovery aspect. So timing of nutrition is important too. And hands down, if you look at all of the research on fatigue during active treatment, it's exercise. So I'm not telling people go to the HIIT classes. That's not appropriate. I actually think if we're thinking about balance and Ayurveda, that's the worst thing that someone could be doing when they're already overwrought through a very difficult treatment. So instead, I'm telling them, take a walk. You know, just have some fresh air, be in touch with nature, but move your body in a slow and gentle way because we know that will enhance movement. We know that enhances lymph movement and it has to do with assimilation of nutrients. So for sure, the exercise piece of it, but gentle exercise, being able to get the nutrients in. And then I do use electrolytes. I do use IV therapy because there are times where some people are just not going to be able to do it. Their digestive tract can't handle it. They are not assimilating well. Like we are just at a standoff moment and it's okay. It's okay to say, I can't do it. I have tried. What else do you have for me? And then I say, this is time for a higher intervention. Let's get some hydration and electrolytes into you, some nutrients into you through venous access. And there's nothing wrong with that. So nobody should feel guilty that they weren't able to accomplish some of the goals of the initial plan. This is what we talked about. And here's where you pivot. And, and that's okay. Yeah. And that's exactly, she's speaking about me because that's what happened to me. I became very dehydrated after treatment one, two, three. And we just, you know, after treatment one and how, you know, I was just flattened and losing a lot of electrolytes and my blood volume was down, everything. I, we scheduled IV hydration for me for the rest of the eight chemo cycles, seven, seven more chemo cycles. Uh, because we wanted to prevent that. And we knew that I was going to have trouble with that. So, and I did feel pretty bad at first. I was like, damn it, why can't I just do this through the electrolytes? Like, I know how to do this. What's wrong with me? Like, I really felt bad. And Dr. Shelley was like, Avanti, you cannot do that to yourself. It's okay. This is the reaction you're having. You need a little more help. Let's get you in for an IV. It's not a big deal. And you really put me sort of at ease and feeling like, okay, I'm okay. So it's that balance of integration of, you know, the things that we know in Western medicine can help us really fast. And then also doing all of these other things that are sort of helping with the soil along the way to 
that are so important. You know, I really wanted to ask you to talk about fasting mimicking because there's so much talk about using a fasting mimicking diet around chemotherapy. I think that this is really, really important information because we can share it with our loved ones or anybody who's listening could share it with friends or family as, you know, you might want to look into this if you're going through chemotherapy. So can you tell us some of the data and like why, you know, you put me on that as well? Let's talk about that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So really probably in the last 10 or so years, well, the last decade or so, there has been a heightened interest in how can we alter the biochemistry of cancer and cancer cell growth? Because a lot of the treatments that we talked about earlier, the conventional treatments don't do that well, right? So there's not a lot of approach of how the cancer cells are using resources to divide. There are some medications that are used, we'll call like a VEGF inhibitor. So they do change the way that tumors grow new blood vessels to get those nutrients. But again, they're not changing nutrients in, nutrients out. So this kind of established known fact that cancers are very hungry for glucose is the Warburg effect. So it's a different change compared to our healthy cells. So they're more agile in a lot of ways with how they use resources because they are hungry to divide in kind of like a kind of a very primitive sense that they want to evolve in such a way to persist. And we have looked at is how can we potentially improve outcomes and reduce recurrence using dietary interventions. And overwhelmingly, it suggests that something called insulin growth factor one, IGF-1, if you can keep those levels lower, then potentially it's harder for a cancer cell because the insulin level is lower and then IGF-1 is lower. So this kind of signal that resources abound everywhere has been muted. That is something that you can measure in a blood test. So that's nice. We're kind of modern tech meets where we can take therapeutic diets. So I'll see a patient and we're working on that. And they're like, I've been great, Dr. Shelley. I've been eating wonderful. And then I look at the IGF-1. I'm like, that tells a different story. And then the kind of confession spews out a little bit about that. So when we look at fasting mimicking, it's kind of a more extreme version of that. So we're going towards a plant-based near keto diet where people were mostly being ketosis during that time period. And what that's doing is metabolically making it harder for a cancer cell to want to be in a state of division, but they keep dividing regardless, whereas your healthy cells can become more senescent, more quiet, because they don't. So there is still an intelligence within healthy cells that's different than a malignant cell. So Walter Longo and others have uh, orchestrated the preclinical research in, in the lab. And then there has been definitely a cascade of human trials looking at that. Um, and most of them, the endpoint has been side effect management because it's easier. You can get data more quickly looking at side effect management. But there also has been some looking at treatment responses in the neoadjuvant period, like ahead of a surgery, we can measure the baseline characteristics and then look at it at the time of surgery. What was the KI-67, which is a measure of kind of aggressiveness. So like looking at TILs, tumor infiltrated lymphocytes. Like, what is the immune response to some of this? And I don't think we have all the answers yet on like what the optimal time frame is, or you know, how much is too much, or is there too much? But what we can say is this is safely something that a patient, if they're willing to do, can do. And there really isn't a downside of that. So people are always afraid there are people going to lose too much weight. The weight loss is going to be tremendous. But I've worked with many patients, hundreds of patients doing this. I do not, except for unusual cases, see a significant weight loss. And if that is the case, by all means, we'll suspend what we're doing and kind of like come back together and decide how we can increase calories in the off days or maybe not do it at all. Maybe abandon fasting mimicking. People will sometimes ask me what my best responders, so people who have metastatic disease that like far exceeded their 
life expectancy. And what I can tell you and everyone listening is that they were very adherent to that. They were very adherent to either like intervals of complete water fast or intervals of doing fasting mimicking or keto type diet, although I do like a plant-based keto diet. So those patients I've had the most amazing kind of responses that have been in my practice have been people who are most adherent to the diet. Yeah. And so really what you're saying is that fasting mimicking, doing that fasting mimicking really starves the cancer cells. That's what we're doing is we're trying to starve the cancer cells so that the chemotherapy can really do its job much better. And me personally, I did have that effect. I mean, I had a pretty miraculous response when we looked at pathology before and pathology post-surgery. I mean, it was quite remarkable. And I'm sure that this was a big part of it. I was really adherent to fasting mimicking for, I did it for two days before, two days after. So it was like usually about a four to five day period, essentially, because it was the day of, I wasn't hungry anyway, I was getting chemo, but two days before, two days after. And, you know, fasting mimicking, if all of you are wondering, like, what does that mean? It was under 1800 calories, I think was the idea, right? With high fats. And And then on the fasting days, under 800 on the fasting mimicking days. Yes. Okay. Sorry. Under 800 on the fasting mimicking days. But then in general, I was, you know, pretty careful with my diet throughout. And is that something that let's, let's shift because I question kind of goes into the next piece, which is, you know, okay, so all these people are listening and maybe they don't have someone that's been touched by cancer. Maybe they have not experienced it, but now they're stressed out and they're like, oh my God, this could happen because we know the data shows that is it half of men and a third of women will experience cancer in their lifetime of some kind. Personally, isn't that the data? I think that's the right number. Yeah, if you include skin cancer, and it's now expected to surpass cardiovascular disease for mortality too. Yeah, and and you know, all of you who are listening know my story that it was a, a spontaneous mutation, as far as we can see, because I have no risk factors, no family history, no genetics, zero genetics. Like they did the most specific genetics, like the very very big panel, nothing showed up. So for me it was kind of out of left field. So let's shift to that then. You know, what are some of the things that you would suggest that all of, you know, these listeners could be doing to help decrease their chances of getting cancer? And I know this is a really loaded, hard question because we live in a toxic world and you can't bubble wrap yourself, but what are some things that we could start to do to really help ourselves? Yeah. So exactly what you kind of alluded to is we worry about the things that we can do and we let go of the things that we can't do. Right. So we're not going to change the ozone layer and solar radiation and some of these macro things. And I will have patients that come and kind of fret about some of those things. And I say, just let go of what we can, but we can modulate what we can. So of course, all the basic things, which is avoiding excessive solar radiation for skin cancer, eating a plant-based whole foods, low glycemic diet. So that means kale, not cookies, right? So I will work with patients and they're like, well, I'm plant-based. But then I look at like their diet diet that we're doing. I'm like, yeah, but you're just living on refined greens all day. So you might be plant-based, but what you're having isn't nourishing. So sometimes it's, it's not what we're not eating. It's what we are eating that makes a difference. So, but for sure, if we look at the totality, the aggregate of research on cancer prevention, high fiber, whole foods, low glycemic diet is the hands down winner. So overall, so when we talk about specialized diets, like eating the fasting mimicking with the keto for small intervals, that was not looking at prevention, right? That's looking at active disease control synergistically with treatment. 
And if you look at things like uh, gastrointestinal cancers, watching alcohol consumption, that's also true for breast cancer as well. Not avoiding some of these things are going to be very, very obvious to your listeners, which are already kind of a higher level, but not being exposed to tobacco smoke, not chewing tobacco, maintaining a healthy weight. Although I will say it's very interesting with breast cancer where having excess weight premenopausally does not convey increased risk. It's only postmenopausally that you start seeing that separation. A lot of that has to do with estrogen, seems more protective premenopausally than postmenopausally. So we don't completely understand everything with the nuances of that, but be careful what we're saying when we're talking about body weight because there is some variability based on menopausal status. And then when I also think about other things for cancer risk, if we look at stress management, like how people live their lives and parasympathetic, sympathetic, some papers have suggested that breast cancer is anywhere between like 10 and 15% among people who rate themselves as high stress. Is it the stress itself? Is it the behaviors that come with having high stress? They try to pull out some of those confounding variables. But in general, people who self-report high stress have higher incidence of breast cancer. And that's a lot of what we're talking about today. Night shift workers have higher risk of several different types of cancer. So considering night shift work, if someone has a higher risk, if someone has a familial genetic mutation, so they're at increased risk. If they have Lynch syndrome in particular, we know that can increase digestive cancers and endometrial cancer. I do think a lot about that because sometimes these people will come to me and we know that they have this risk, but then I see that they're taking a hormonal form of birth control. So it's a conversation going back then to the gynecologist, is this most appropriate for me? Because I do have these individual risk factors that might be different from somebody else. So I think a checkup on that is really important too. Is there anything that I'm doing right now that I could make an adjustment for on kind of the conventional medications or the same thing can be true for supplements. So high copper intake can increase risk of certain types of cancer. So I don't want my patients who have some risk factors taking copper supplements if that is a particular risk for them. So I do think understanding that in the nutraceutical world, a lot of times it is like a Goldilocks effect. You want enough of something, but you don't want too much of something. Same thing is true of selenium. If you're selenium deficient, it increases cancer risk, but so does selenium excess. Yeah. Okay. So those are lots of things that you... Um, I know. And I could, I could really talk for like three more hours about this. <laughs> I know. No, no. And that's okay. And, you know, people can go back and listen and take notes. I will certainly have yeah. to do that as well. Let me ask you about, you know, fasting specifically. What would you say to somebody who is like, well, can I incorporate that into my lifestyle to help with, you know, decreasing my chances of getting cancer or having that happen? What do you think about that? Mm-hmm. I I think it's worth pursuing, particularly if it's not burdening someone to someone's kind of routine circadian rhythm. What we know, which seems to be kind of just resonant over and over, is it seems about 13 hours. Remember I mentioned the IGF-1, insulin growth factor 1? At about 13 hours between dinner and breakfast is when you really start getting tighter control on IGF-1. So that's what I tell people. I know a lot of people doing these at kind of more extreme fasts, and that's just still a little uncertain. And of course, this whole area, we're still learning as we learn. But in general, that's a good cutoff where someone's not going to have deleterious effects from doing that outside of some like really rare circumstances. So that's a really good recommendation to have. And then if you look at timing of meals, it really is more important to have lighter meal before bed. And we've looked at some of these longevity studies, even outside of oncology. And so people who eat more of their calories earlier in the day have better control of metabolic parameters. So they're less likely to get metabolic syndrome. So things like hypertension and diabetes. So I will have patients that come to me and look, I'm a great faster. What they're doing is they're skipping breakfast and fasting till noon. And guess what? I'm not seeing the hemoglobin A1C, which is the average blood sugar move at all. 
we change the timing of day they're eating, even though we really didn't change what they're eating much at all. And then suddenly the numbers improve and that has been validated through trials. Yeah. And I want to point out that every single recommendation you just made is Ayurveda, right? 13 hour fast, that's fasting while you sleep. Don't eat, don't eat late, right? That's circadian medicine. That is what we've done for 5,000 years. And we know that this works, right? And then the other piece that you mentioned was eating your, you know, making your dinner lighter, eating your calories earlier in the day. And Ayurveda, we say, eat your biggest meal at lunchtime. Your digestive power is the highest. And so it's always so wonderful and fascinating to me when medical science, modern science proves what we've known in Ayurveda. And what I want to say about that also is that, you know, that is not like a huge lifestyle change. It's some small changes to the timing, to when you stop eating, to when you start eating. Very simple changes that you can make that actually go along with nature, so it's even easier, right, that are protective of your health. And this is something that, you know, I've been talking about all month in October as we're talking about cancer and our health from my own perspective. And some of the things that I've realized over this journey of seven months is that Ayurveda these ways of living, these indigenous healing, ancient healing traditions, naturopathy, homeopathy, all of them, they are protective of our health. Yes, they prevent things, but they protect our health. And so when life goes sideways, like it did for me on February 17th, when I got this diagnosis, my life blew up. I didn't realize at that time what I know now is that Ayurveda has protected me. It really helped me get through this in a way that I don't think I would have been able to if I hadn't been doing all of these things before, these simple practices without even knowing that what the effect would be on cancer, but I was just doing them as my lifestyle. They protected me while I went through a cancer journey. So I think that that's really important. So just to... I don't know what you feel about that. I no, I feel that's absolutely true, and I will definitely have frustration meeting new patients sometimes. Like, why did I get cancer? I have all of these wonderful things that I do, and I do assure them that people, by all parameters, who are healthy, except that they got cancer, do have better outcomes. They do. They tolerate treatment better. They have better disease control. They have breast relapse and recurrence. And there's some interesting things with botanical medicine where, for example, green tea seems better at reducing recurrence than primary prevention, like getting breast cancer in the first place. So there is some kind of nuance to all this too, where we're looking at application of some of the things we're talking about. And going back to the Ayurvedic perspective, we think about AMA, like elimination. So sometimes when I'm working with patients, I'm thinking about like, how do we detox? And that might be something with food, that might be something very digestive and kind of assimilative, but sometimes it can also be like excessive use of social media, excessive use of electronics. So sometimes that kind of purging is also things that are like an overstimulation of senses, which I find very Ayurvedic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you even, you know, you had that conversation with me even being an Ayurvedic pr- practitioner, we had, you know, a conversation and you said, you know, what are some of the things you need to let go of? you know, what are some of the energetic pieces of this for you? And you gave me some things to, to think about. And I really, really did take it seriously. And it helped me a lot. I'm sure that that's all part of my healing. So, you know, I really appreciate that your perspective, the naturopathic lens, the integrative oncology lens is taking into consideration mind, body, spirit, and it's all evidence-based, but it's also talking about all these issues and like how the whole person is showing up because the cancer is 
you know, it's the whole person. It's not just in one piece of it, right? Yes, we can we can say it's specifically in the left breast or whatever it is, but it's showing up for a bigger, you know, reason from my perspective anyway. And there's so many different pieces that we can address. Okay, we are almost out of time, but I want to just ask you a couple more questions. And you know, you are a really busy physician. How do you support your well-being? You know, what are some of the things that you do daily as an integrative oncologist? to maintain your health, your longevity for, you know, prevention of cancer? What are you doing? So I have a busy brain, probably like a lot of people listening and a lot of people in medicine. So for me, it's really important that my social time be something that unplugs from that. So I play on a volleyball league. So I do that most Friday nights and I play violin with my son on Thursday. So he's 10, but we're doing like parent-child violin and knowing I have to get to violin, I have to leave to work on time. Whereas before I would potentially excessively be on my schedule, but now I have to get to violin. So that has been really good. So I think the social part has been good for me, but I definitely still use someone from the health coaching perspective to help me stay on track. I can be the same way. Suddenly I'm eating more refined carbs or emotional eating. And if I don't have someone to touch base with, I'm, I'm human. I'm just like everybody else. So having people on my team that kind of keep me in check is important as well. So I'm, I don't want to tell people listening that we as physicians are somehow immune to that. We're not like, we all need that. We all need that support. And end of the day, a lot of times when I'm giving lectures, people ask like, what's your favorite herb or, you know, that kind of conversation. And I always say like family and faith, because I feel like if you're oriented in your social structure and you're oriented in your spirituality, that those things are very powerful. So that takes people to think sometimes by surprise, but that's important to me personally too. I love that. And I love that you said you, you need a coach too. I think that's so important. And that's what I found. I needed you as a coach to help me through this. Could I have done all the research and read it all? Yeah. But was I in a mental place to do that? No, I needed someone to take care of me. And I think that's what you're saying too, is that you need someone to take care of you and and check in with you and keep you accountable. I, I really appreciate that. Can I just do a couple of speed round questions? I know I have like four minutes with you probably. And these are just fun questions that are meant for the listeners to you know learn more about you. I know you don't know the questions, but let's see how you do. <laughs> I'm sure you'll be fine. So complete this sentence. Integrative oncology is nourishing. Yes. Love that. What is one myth about cancer that we need to change? That cancer occurs in a vacuum. I also think another myth is that primary treatment modalities, like whether you're talking about radiation or chemo, that they're responsible for all disease control. And we know that's not true because in breast cancer, sometimes people can relapse 12 years, 15, 20 years later. It's a long time after you had those interventions. Mm -hmm. It's not the whole story. Yeah. The soil, the seed in the soil, right? You got to keep that soil nourished even after. And that's, that's the phase I'm in now. What is something that people often get wrong about you? I think people get wrong about me that they see the clinical professional side of me and think that I don't think about patients when I leave the office. I'm always thinking about patients. I think that I'm impacted very personally by the patient experience and I take it seriously, maybe too much at times, but for the most part, it enriches my life, both as a provider and personally. So I think they see professional me in the clinic and don't know always until they get to know me more 
that that's a personality trait. Yeah, it's really beautiful. What is one thing that you're really excited about right now? I love all the research about gut microbiome and immunotherapy and how we can potentially harness a conventional therapy and optimize it using all the tools that we have in integrative oncology. I love it. And more and more research keeps coming back. And the numbers are outstanding, sometimes potentially up to a 40% difference in response. Like it's amazing. Like food Mm -hmm. is medicine. Yeah. Yeah. Food is medicine. This feels like a good place for us to end because that's that's a powerful statement. Food is medicine. And that's so much of what we've done together. But you know, if I offer up the phrase to catalyze healing, what comes up for you? There needs to be a quiet moment of introspection so that you yourself can help identify what the priorities of that might be. I love that. Dr. Shelley, thank you so much for doing this, for, you know sharing your wisdom, your knowledge, and thank you for everything that you've done for me. I I so appreciate it. Thank you, Avanti. I love this opportunity to speak with you and to have been on your team. Thanks again for listening to The Healing Catalyst. If you love what you heard, please hit follow and pass it along to a friend. And if you're feeling really inspired, please rate and review so that others can find this podcast more easily. To learn more, head to avantikumarsingh.com. And to connect with me directly, find me on Instagram at Avanti Kumar Singh. I'll be back next week and hope that you will be too. Until then, remember, with the right catalyst, you have the power to activate your own healing because healing starts within.